Evidence and Answers. Is it all right for scientists to play around and alter genetic coding? What about embryos? Is there anything off limits? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Dr. Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat Zucaran and his guest, Dr. Ray Bolin, will be tackling a very tough and difficult topic. Pat is going through a series that focuses on ethics, and the topic at hand is genetic engineering. Testing in the name of science? What does God's Word say about it? Is this really okay? Let's join Pat and his guest, Dr. Ray Bolin, now as they discuss this interesting topic. Dr. Uh Ray Bolin, welcome to the show, Ray. Glad to be here, Pat. Ray has a PhD in molecular biology, has written and spoken on this issue of medical ethics all over the country, actually all over the world. And Ray, when it comes to this whole issue of medical ethics, there are two clear perspectives here, isn't there, that often clash. What are those two perspectives? From our point of view, Pat, the, the first one clearly is a biblical view, and, and it, it all hinges upon our view of man and human nature. Uh, for us as Christians, we gain that from the Scriptures, from uh, two particular places, uh, Genesis 1, uh, the creation of man, uh, the Lord tells us that we were created in His image and in His likeness. And that has a number of ramifications And that, uh, first of all, human beings are the only ones like that. No other animal creature was created that way or told to be in God's image. And so we are unique and we are distinct from the other animals. And within a, sometimes we can think, well, we do such, such and such kind of experiments with animals. Why don't we do them with humans? Well, it's because we're created in His image and there's a higher level of dignity uh, involved with the human being that we just don't treat them like we do animals. The other side of it is a more evolutionary and um, naturalistic perspective. And clearly, again, their view of a human being is that we are just another animal species. There is nothing unique or special about us. Um, whatever we procedures or experiments we do with animals, why wouldn't you do those with human beings as long as we can guarantee that they're to some degree safe and so forth? So, um it really comes down to a clash of how you view human beings as to what kind of experiments we do and where we go with genetic engineering. And so worldview makes a big difference, doesn't it, as to how we approach all of life, especially in this area of medical ethics? It absolutely does, Pat. Um, the, as I said earlier, the the criterion that we use to decide whether we do an experiment or we don't do an experiment, we try this uh, procedure or we don't try it, uh, we've been doing many things in animals for for almost 30 years now uh, as far as genetic engineering, but we're only begin, been doing things in humans for a few years, and there are, there are lines being crossed already that most people aren't aware of. Yeah, Ray, if there's just one general rule that we could remember as Christians uh, when we approach and make decisions in areas of medical ethics, what would that uh, one rule be, the one well, guideline? It's the value of human life, and, and where do we assign human life? Um, most in the medical research community today are, are wanting to say that the earliest embryo up until the point of what they call a blastocyst, which is about 
five to seven days or up to 14 days after fertilization, they're willing to now say those are just reproductive cells. That's not a human being. And therefore, they can do whatever experiments they choose to do on those embryos, on those embryonic cells. Whereas from our perspective, our assignment of human life comes from the very moment of conception because we were uh, conceived as, as, as a sinful creature. As David tells us in Psalm 51.5, we have a, a spiritual aspect to who and what we are that begins from the moment of conception and somehow gr- creates that combination of body, soul, and spirit at the moment of conception. So this is a valuable human being that we would not do those kinds of research experiments upon. So it's the value of human life. Yeah, and as Christians, we come from a value of life perspective. Uh, those from the naturalist worldview come from what kind of perspective? Where more of a quality of life or uh, reproductive, you know, how does it propagate the species kind of per- perspective? Well, yeah, the major criterion, for instance, that a naturalist will use as to whether we take the next step in an experimental uh, regimen is to ask, well, first of all, is my experiment legal? Uh, secondly, is it safe? And, and thirdly, does it have some sort of uh, beneficial end point to it? Uh, what will this help us achieve? What sort of disease might we be able to treat? And so, for many respects, their perspective is that um, the end justifies the means. And if your if your experimental regimen is going to run up against a a difficult uh, decision about human life, and your definition of human life is going to thwart or or somehow alter your experimental regimen, well, you don't you don't alter your experimental protocol, what you do is you change the definition of human life. You define it differently so you can go ahead. Dr. Bolin, sounds like almost a real pragmatic approach. If it's useful, then we ought to do it. Much like uh, the Nazis say, well, it's very useful that we do human experimentation. That's right. And they're actually very particular about who it's useful for. It's useful for those who are already adults, those who are already born. If it's not useful or even lethal to an embryo or a fetus, well, we don't worry about that so much. Yeah, one of the things we Christians you know, need to understand is that uh, the biblical worldview applies to all areas of life, especially in this area of medical technology. A lot of times we think, well, it applies to my spiritual life, my walk with God, but when it comes to technology or or science, oh, you know, now we got to go by a whole different set of guidelines. No, the mm-hmm. Bible has a lot to say in this whole area. And one of the most controversial, one of the hot areas right now is this whole area of genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray, what exactly is genetic engineering? Well, it's, it's a means of trying to change the genetic structure of an organism, or in our case, of human beings. Uh, you know, the current estimates now are that humans have about 30, maybe 40,000 genes. Genes are what code for proteins. Proteins are what make your body work. It's what makes cells work. And so the genetic material is, is the key uh, to your biological makeup. And what we've been doing in, in bacteria and other animals for over 30 years now is we've been adding genes. We've been taking genes out. We've been changing them and altering what the organism does and, and how it lives its life, and sometimes to our own benefit and sometimes to the organism's benefit. Um, but it's only with, been within the last 10 or so years that we've really been thinking and planning and, and actually doing experiments to try to change the genetic structure of a human being. And. Another good point is that, Christians, we are not against technology. Mm -hmm. We are for the responsible use of technology. Now, how has genetic engineering been used in good ways, and how has it been used in uh, maybe controversial or even detrimental ways? 
Well, Pat, for instance, uh, for years, uh, we obtained insulin for diabetics from the spleens of pigs from the slaughterhouse. Uh, however, diabetics who would take that insulin over a period of decades would eventually develop a, an allergic reaction to that, and that would be very obviously a, a harmful reaction to them. And sometimes they had to stop it altogether, which was life-threatening. Um, now what we do is we've taken the human gene for insulin, we've placed it into bacteria, and now we grow these big, huge vats of bacteria, and, and they excrete human insulin as a waste product, and we simply harvest it from, from the medium. Uh, so we're actually able to deliver much safer, better quality, and more of it cheap, more cheaply. Um, and there are other experiments where we've done that sort of thing. We've introduced human genes into uh, pigs and to sheep, uh, for instance, for various clotting factors and hemophiliacs need. And now these pigs and sheep will simply excrete uh, this human uh, clotting factor in their milk. And we just filter it out of the milk, and it's, very, it's a lot easier, it's a lot cheaper, and it's a better quality. Uh, so we've used genetic engineering for some very positive, very positive things for humans. And that's great. That's something we as Christians ought to applaud and uh, continue to encourage the scientific world into uh, you know, this responsible use of technology that benefits human life. Mm-hmm. Well, where are we beginning to cross the line here in this whole area of genetic engineering and, and uh, you know, issues that Christians, we need to be aware of? Well, it isn't so much, Pat, that we've actually crossed the lines just yet. Um, trying to do these kinds of experiments with human beings, there still is a bit of hesitation. There is a, a popular um, revulsion to a certain degree of changing our genetic structure. We have added genes or tried to add genes to human beings who are suffering from fatal diseases. Um, we've been trying to do gene therapy, as it's called, with uh, cystic fibrosis patients, trying to correct, correct the defective gene um, in their, in their lungs, particularly in, their, in the cells of their lungs. Um, and we haven't had a great deal of success. That hasn't worked well. Um, but what some people are projecting uh, to the future, uh, a man named Gregory Stock, for instance, wrote a book in 2002 called Redesigning Humans, Our Inevitable Genetic Future. And what he was proposing and what he's saying is that the kind of experiments we're already doing in animals, such as mice, um, are paving the way for enhancing human beings genetically, changing who and what we are, even changing what we are as a species, and holding this up as a great ideal and altering our own genetic future. In other words, planning our own evolution. And so, and, and the difficulty here is that we are already doing these kinds of experiments in animal models, and our history has been whatever the medical research community has done in animals, they eventually do in human beings. Well, that sounds like something from the uh, movie uh, Gattaca, doesn't it? <laughs> Isn't there a clip in there that uh, you often use? In your yeah, talks? there sure is, Pat, and, and it, it highlights the, the difficulty that I think uh, many parents will face in the next few decades. It could be 10, 20, maybe 50 years away, uh, but I do believe this, uh, this threat is coming in the sense of you know, screening embryos for genetic diseases, and even not just diseases anymore, but just proclivities or, or uh Predilections to certain kinds of, of uh, I don't know, biological characteristics. Are you prone to attention deficit disorder? Do you have a Do you have a predisposition to alcoholism, perhaps? And going into embryos and screening for those things, and not just not just selecting embryos, but actually changing uh, the genes in these embryos to fit the design and the desire of what the parents want. 
Um, and there's a great scene on there where they you know project that very idea and going to a fertility clinic and you know the uh, researcher is giving them all these options, all the things they did, all the things they selected for, and, and the couple ask, "Well, can't we just leave a few things to chance?" And he responds, says, well, this is still you. It's just the best of you. You mm-hmm. couldn't conceive a thousand times without getting this kind of result. And it, it makes it sound very attractive, very reasonable. Uh, but the reality is in that same situation, they are disposing of probably uh, a dozen or so embryos that just didn't make the grade. We're talking about genetic engineering here and uh, some of the research that's being done and things that Christians need to be aware of. And Ray Bolin... What is uh, this whole area we call pre-implantation genetic diagnosis? And how is this paving the way for human uh, genetic engineering? Yeah, Pat, it's definitely easier to say the abbreviation PGD, isn't it? Mm. That's how a lot of people know about that. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is already going on in fertility clinics around the country. Not all of them do it, but many are, and they're actually advertising for it. And what that means is that when we have uh, go in for in vitro fertilization, if your family is prone to a particularly difficult genetic disease that is easily tested for, usually meaning it's due to a, a defect in one gene, things like Tay-Sachs disease, or hemophilia or cystic fibrosis, that you will create a number of embryos, say eight or nine embryos, and they can genetically test those embryos, taking removing one cell from the early embryo, seeing what it, whether it has that gene or not, and therefore you determine, okay, these would develop the disease, these would not, and people are choosing, therefore, to implant only those that would be disease-free. Now, we've also extended beyond that. What, obviously, what you do then with the ones that do have the disease is those are discarded and those are thrown away. Um, but we're already some clinics are already advertising this for something as mundane as selecting the sex of their child. There was a story in Newsweek magazine not too long ago of a couple, uh, I think it was from California, I'm not exactly sure, I don't remember the details, but um, they had already had three children, they had three boys, and they just really wanted a girl. And so they went to this fertility clinic that advertised a sex selection by, by PGD. And uh, they created 14 embryos, turned it out seven were boys, seven were girls. They mm-hmm. took three of the female embryos and implanted those and essentially discarded the rest. Yeah, and those embryos are human life forms. They certainly are. They? they certainly are. And their only mistake was being the wrong sex. And so what this do- what this shows me is that we're already emphasizing and promoting an attitude that says, I can choose the genetic structure of my child. Uh, and I, w- I am willing to sacrifice embryos in the process of doing that. And therefore, it's only a very short step away from changing the actual genetic structure of that embryo, which we already do uh, in other animal models. We've been adding genes, for instance, to pigs and sheep and cattle for a long time. And uh, it's very hit or miss. It doesn't work very well. It's only 1% of the time. But we're already working on mechanisms to make that more efficient. And so that's one of the big problems is the number of embryos that are discarded that don't make the grade. Uh, But is there anything wrong in in parents saying, okay, I want my child to be a boy instead of a girl. I want to be blonde. I want to be six feet tall, not five foot five like me. Is there anything wrong in, in that aspect? 
Well, it's a kind of yes or no, uh, Pat. It, it's a difficult question to to answer very concretely because on the one hand, if these procedures can be done safely, for instance, sex selection doesn't have to be done uh, by uh, genetic screening of the embryos. We do have procedures already where fertility clinics can take a sample of sperm and separate those that carry the Y from those that carry the X, and you simply fertilize with those, and you got about an 85-90% chance of getting the desired sex. Well, in that case, uh, no embryos are being sacrificed, and you could then ask the question, well, what's, what's wrong with that? Why can't I have what I choose to have? And what troubles me, though, is, is that we, we put ourselves as parents in, into, a, into a situation of being far more than just stewards, being far more than just parents. Because as we begin designing and selecting what characteristics our children will have, then we can become something more that's like a, an owner, a designer. A child becomes something to be designed, sold, and even marketed. And some are even suggesting that, that very sort of thing. Um, how you would treat your child when you have designed them, you have planned who and what they are to a certain degree, um, that sets up a dynamic with between a parent and child relationship that to me is, is, uh, is rather difficult to conceive. Uh, that really troubles me. Um, well, I hadn't thought about that. That is rather troubling. Yeah, just the designer children. Well, yeah, it, it becomes a manufacturing process. It's no longer really just procreation. Uh, like I said, you, you treat your car, especially if you've gone to a, a dealer and you've picked out you want this, this, and this, and the car takes a couple of weeks to be delivered to you. Well, that is, that's your car. You help design that thing. You help build it. And you treat it in a different sort of way than you do a child. But when you start designing your children... I'm not sure that we're quite ready to make the transition to say we're just going to treat them like any other child will. Pat and uh, Ray, I wanted to bring up something quickly because at the taping of this program last night, 60 Minutes had a show on eugenics, mm. the eugenics movement of the early uh, 20th century here in America. Yes. And uh, I think it scared a lot of people to death to, mm -hmm. to see what happened in the, the early 1900s in America and even continued after Nazi Germany here. And it was basically that there were certain people that we needed to prevent from reproducing yeah. in order to better America. Mm -hmm. And these experimentations went uh, on and uh, some of this uh, uh, philosophy went on in certain uh, government institutions that housed mentally retarded people. Mm -hmm. A lot of those mentally, a lot of those people who were allegedly mentally retarded were not. In fact, they were just poor. They had no place else to go. They were orphans, and they were stuck in these deplorable conditions. Lived to tell about it, and now uh, this has kind of come to light. And so, mm -hmm. in a way, we are talking about some medical ethics and genetic engineering in some way here, uh, uh, mm -hmm. present in the country. What well, What was able to stop that uh, in the twenties and the thirties, and and honestly, that's where. Nazi Germany got some of its ideas for its own eugenic policies from what, from what was being done here in the U.S. and in Britain in those in, the, in those decades. Um, but what stopped that is the fact that these were adults and this was being done without their consent. And it, the laws are being passed and, and proclamations made and you must do this. And that's what people reacted against. However, what we're doing here is different in the sense that what we're planning on doing is altering embryo, embryos that have no opportunity to have informed consent. We put it in the hands of the parents and say, well, as long as the parents say it's okay, we can make these kinds of decisions. 
And also what we talked about earlier in the program about the fact that the embryo up until about 14 days, the medical research community is trying to say this, these are just reproductive cells. These aren't human beings yet. Uh, so we can do whatever we want to them. So we're changing the definitions. We're trying to do the very same thing we did in the 20s and 30s, but we're changing the rules by saying, well, it's just an embryo. It's just reproductive cells. It's not a human being. Don't need informed consent. Parents say it's okay, so we're, we're, all, we're all right. Um, but again, we are starting to make decisions that affect future, future generations. We are, in one sense, when we toss away embryos that don't measure up, we are sacrificing uh, the next generation for our benefit. We've never done that before. It's always been the current adult generation that has made sacrifices for the next one coming along. Now what we're doing is we're saying the next generation, you make the sacrifices. We will determine what those sacrifices are, and that will benefit us in the long run. Um, that, that's a great – that's a major switch in how we approach life. Well, not only are we doing things in the embryonic stage, but also are we doing experiments that can alter uh, you know, the adult human body such as aging. Mm -hmm. I understand there are experiments out there that may alter the gene that uh, causes us to age so that we can look 30 years old all the way up until the day we die. Yeah, we're working very hard on that. That's very attractive to people from a naturalistic evolutionary viewpoint because they realize that this life is all they've got. <laughs> there is no life after. There is no afterlife. And so uh, I need to prolong this as much as I can. And we have been doing experiments in, in mice particularly for a long time, even just simply altering the diet. If, if you take uh, mice and, and you cut their caloric intake by 40 percent, they live 50 percent longer. So we're, we're very conscious now that there probably is a biological trigger that's being, uh, that's being pressed, if you will, because of that lower calorie intake. And maybe there's a genetic change that we can make uh, to allow that gene to be turned off at the same earlier or turned down, whatever is actually happening genetically, uh, and maybe prolong human lifespans by 50%, not having to go through a restrictive diet necessarily to do it, but maybe a small genetic change could accomplish that for us. So we wouldn't live an average of 70, 75 years, but we might live an average of 105, 110, and uh, the oldest person won't be 120, but he might be 170. Um, and there are many people who would think that that would be a great thing to do, have us live for 200 years instead of 75. Well, Ray, in the closing uh, few minutes that we have together, what, what is the future of human genetic engineering? Where do you see this thing going in the future? It's going to especially affect the up-and-coming generation more than us, won't it? Well, it certainly will. And when I, when I talk to young people, I tell, them, I tell them very plainly, please, please pay attention in biology class. Because my, my uh, reproductive decisions are already made, but the young people who are in middle school and high school, by the time they marry and start their families, many of these technologies will start to be available to them, and they'll, they'll have some difficult decisions to make. Um, where it actually will go will depend on how successful the research is. There still are lots of big questions out there as to what we can and cannot do. Um, but I think as a church, we're going to be faced with the possibility of 50, 100 years in the future of realizing that there is an enhanced portion of our, of our population and an unenhanced portion of our population. We need to be thinking now, how do we share the gospel? How do we continue uh, the body of Christ in this changing context that we see for the future? Yeah, and as Christians, we need to be at the forefront on this whole issue, being the conscience mm -hmm. in this whole issue of medical ethics. This concludes Pat's interview with Dr. Ray Bolin. 
Evidence and Answers is a listener-supported radio ministry outreach. If you've been blessed by Evidence and Answers radio broadcast, please join us in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. The donate button is located on the right-hand side of our homepage. Our key sponsor is Highland Capital Management, providing alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. That's it for now. Please tune in next time as Pat and his friends discuss current issues and answer the tough questions we face today, providing reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers.